We start one minute, one minute in between each team. We start with team number one, two, three. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 90 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about teams one, two, and three. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And yes, a very quick review to get us underway today. Intelligent and in-depth podcast, five stars from White Knight from the UK, some really well-researched insights that will benefit any cyclist looking to improve their fitness and performance. Keep up the great work. Thank you, White Kite, for taking the time out to do that. I really, really dig that you did go to the iTunes store and, and write that review. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time out to write a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go... This is very nice of you. He's a very nice You're man. You're a very nice man. I like You're a very nice man. Thank you very much. Now, two great articles that I came across this week. The first one is a very interesting study for those coming out of winter and are assessing where they are and wanting to know how they can be in better shape for next year and also those that may travel and have to stay away from the bike for a little bit and want to know what to do when they're on the road. The study is called Improved VO2 Max and Time Trial Performance with More High Anaerobic Intensity Interval Training and Reduced Volume, a case study on an elite national cyclist. It looked at reducing an elite cyclist training volume in the off-season and increasing the amount of VO2 max training mostly done by running uphill on a treadmill. So it did look in the off-season, the pre-season period, as they call it in the study, where the cyclist was tested for VO2 max cycling economy and time trial performance, while training was also continuously logged using a heart rate monitor for the entire period. The total monthly training volume was reduced in the 2011 preseason compared to the 2010 preseason, and it had two high-intensity blocks. 14 sessions in 9 days and 15 sessions in 10 days were performed as running. Between these blocks in the sessions per week, there was some cycling done. So it wasn't just running. No cyclist would ever just give up riding for running. Or maybe they would, but I'm just being a smartass. From November 2010 to February 2011, the cyclist reduced total monthly training volume by 18% and cycling training volume by 60%, which is massive, massive dump. And the intensity increase was shown by a... 90 to 95% heart rate peak training increasing to 41%. So what were the results? The VO2 max increased by 10.3% on the ergometer and the time trial performance improved by 14.9%. Cycling economy didn't change. The researchers concluded that during the preseason, a reduction in total training volume and an increased amount of high intensity training improved VO2 max and time trial performance without any changes in cycling economy. Okay, just what I said. But these improvements on cycling are 
disappeared despite the high-intensity blocks were performed as running, which was the main thing this was trying to get at. The reduced training time and training transfer from running into improved cycling form may be beneficial for cyclists living in cold climate areas. Interestingly, it seems that the gains are partly due to the increased intensity and decreased volume, in particular the 60% reduction in cycling volume, which is similar to a taper period and you're trying to elicit the same response. So that's the interesting thing, that replacing the VO2 max workouts with running did elicit the same response that you would aim for if you were on a bike in a taper period. I would say that running can really hurt you if you don't do it, especially if you're a cyclist. I'm personally just coming back from a sprained ankle, which is a really, really annoying thing to have. But maybe you want to look at a low-impact alternative if you can't handle the running. But, But my conclusions are that while there is a lot of back and forth about the potential to increase zone 5, or if it even is a indicator of performance at all, I think that this is really just a try it and see type of deal. For those forced off the bike, whether it's winter or travel, the merit here is at least at minimum avoiding detraining, if not maintaining training and potentially getting some gains. So don't just go out and smash yourself with the first run, hold back a little bit, but definitely give it a shot if you're in either one of these scenarios. Now, Article 2 is an interview and another interview with a coach This time, James Victor, and he was actually Cycling Australia's Coach of the Year last year for the Under-23 Men's Program. Now, we all know the Under-23 Men have some stars in it, one in particular, Caleb Ewan, that absolutely rocked Europe when he went over there for the first time. But James Victor himself has been around for a long time. I spent a brief stint as an athlete of his, but considering his experience he does have, he doesn't get much limelight. I probably just put that down to the life of a coach. But anyway, this interview itself is a really good look at his life and coaching principles, which are actually more about building a person more than just a writer. And it's definitely worth a look if you're interested in how a coach thinks about the big picture and not just writing when they're trying to build a cyclist. Okay, the nuts and bolts this week. And once the race is done and you're trying to think back what happened, whether it was good or bad, it's really a time to absorb and think about what went on during that race so you can figure out what to do next time or what not to do next time. And for me, I talk a lot about quantifying riding by recording data, hard data, numbers, whether these are through a power meter or a speedo or a heart rate or whatever they are. But There is another valuable source of data, which is our subjective information about race performances, information that can be explicitly stated and recorded for the benefit of comparison at a later date. And examples of subjective data are mood, confidence, event feel, even your perceived performance is a really important metric to record. This type of data is just as important to output metrics because a lot of the time it drives these metrics. Like I've said before, the gateway to performance is through the mind. And this becomes even more important if this is a large weakness of yours, then this will go a long way in addressing your mental limiters. And while we're on mental limiters, here's an interesting insight into how much it can stop your performance when it counts, or at least when somebody is looking at your performance as a whole and what are your rate limiting factors that stop you from getting the performance that you want 
whether it is a coach or you're looking at yourself, there is an article published in Cycling News, and it was published September 9, 2012, and Garmin Sharp boss Jonathan Vorders raised an interesting tidbit about how he saw rider Tom Danielson. So this is his quote here. So Tommy D, he's a guy that has used O2 vector doping and with some success, of course, he's talking about EPO here, but when you test him without O2 vector doping, you quickly see this guy has massive aerobic ability. His O2 transport isn't the limiting factor with his body and mind. However, he is not a mentally strong athlete. He succumbs to nerves and pressures very easily. So in looking at his physiology and psychology, the rate limiting factor is the latter, not the former. So working on that makes huge strides. Giving him O2 vector doping is akin to putting a bigger engine in a car with a flat tire because you want to go faster. Yes, it will make the car with the flat tire go faster, but you could just go ahead and fix the flat tire instead. To me, that's a really clear indicator that you've got to get your head right first before there's any point in even loading on the training load. But we are talking about races here and getting the best out of yourself in these different situations. So now that it is a little clearer that recording the subjective and sometimes the woo-woo things about racing can really help you focus on strengthening our mental game. But what's the answer here? Of course, it is a race report. And race reports are a bit of an art form because too often riders get caught up in the story, the way they saw it, the flying, the injustice, the battles, whatever it is. We're going to try and skip over that stuff and leave that to the post-race shit-talking. What I'm talking about is actually putting something down objectively so you can measure it in some way or at least make some changes from what is down. And what I'm talking about is getting down the details to objectively assess race performance, strategy, nutrition, pace, and even confidence and motivation. And this is because a race report's greatest strength is to use it as a tool to be honest and objective with yourself and your coach. And a race report should be more for your use as an evaluation tool than it is as entertainment for others. So other than looking at the numbers, It's the second most effective use of your time after the race. And assessing your performance and how closely it matched your expectations is a huge place to get a clear understanding of where your head is at. Because if it didn't match, what are the causes? Were you underconfident? Did you not go in thinking you were going to do well? Did something happen mid-race that stopped you from getting the most out of it? Was it the race itself? Was it the terrain? Did you overestimate your fitness or underestimate other areas of preparation before going into that event? What types of things can be learned from this reflection and evaluation? It really may seem that this is a heavy drain on your time, but I really think it is super important to get the most out of the information while it's there and fresh. So down to the nitty-gritty of analyzing your race performance, if you don't take the time to assess your performance and examine the mistakes you made in the race or your preparations, you're going to repeat them again and again and again because we can only recall so much and it's only the really, really deep things that sink in, whether they're linked to an emotion or something else. Everything outside of that, you're most likely to forget. So having these things as a reminder and pulling out the most important things from the data and information that you gather will then mean that it transfers into some tangible reality the next time you're going into a big race. So what questions are we looking for in a race report? 
The goal really is to identify the key factors in your performance, the negative or positive ones that really made a difference. So as far as when you should complete a race report, it really is the sooner you get it done, the better it is. We all know that when your mind is fresh, you remember things a lot clearly and it cannot be clouded by this romantic view of how you did or this rage of how badly you did. So getting it out as soon as possible really is the best way to go and you want to do it within one or two days because the further you go, the more blurred it gets. So when it comes down to it, don't really be afraid of the details. The more information you put down, the more likely you're going to identify the key components that affected performance and nothing is unimportant. It's the little things that can make the biggest difference so include plenty of details. I'm not going to go just yet into the specifics of what to actually do, but where should you store it? Where should this be? And preferably, you want to have it stored somewhere for easy access. And I think that with your training program is the best place to do it. And just like some writers like to read back over their training notes before a big event, it can be helpful to refresh your memory and trigger certain thoughts and emotions by reading these race reports as well. Plus, it might be the reminder you need to remember a crucial element of your preparation or race plan. But that's not totally vital because like I'm going to speak about, there is a way to slot it into your race preparations now rather than thinking about them when it's too late. One of the biggest misconceptions athletes have is thinking that the only time they need to actually evaluate a race is on a poor performance. But just like looking where you want to go and avoiding everything else, if you just do this, then you won't actually figure out how you go under pressure and when you do well. You want to know what you did when you did a race result that you were really happy with or a performance in a race that you were really happy with. You want to know how that happened because you're trying to replicate that stuff while avoiding and not looking at the other stuff. So definitely, I think after every single race, you should be doing an evaluation. It's probably more important for the bigger ones, but I think the practice of getting it down and thinking about your race, it's really good to read some cyclist blogs because the way that they can actually recall things without telling the story or looking past the bits that don't actually help, I think getting that out and it's a communication skill that you have that the more you do it, the easier it will become and the more effective you will be at it. So after every single race, try and break down in the format that I'm going to present later on, see if that makes the process flow a lot easier for you. I also like to discuss this in person with my athletes to be able to read a little bit between the lines to get an idea of what change that can be made that might not be so obvious. Like any problem you're faced with, talking it out is often the best way to unravel your thoughts that are in your head. And usually, even just being a sounding board for someone means that they come to their own realizations quicker, but I'm not going to be a pop psychologist here and tell you why. But I wanted to do something different with this episode, so I recorded part of a post-race debrief with an athlete that I coach, Alex. And to set this up for you so it doesn't feel like you're just dropping in nowhere because it is a little detailed and there are things in here that won't make sense without some context... We have been building towards this race over a long and cold, snowy winter. So this was the first opportunity to see where his race form is, especially after seeing a 25% increase in his five-minute power over the last couple of months. It wasn't an A race. His first A race is going to be in a couple of weeks, so it was a bit of a test for that. But we did class this as a B race, back off a little bit to realize some form and freshness before the event. Also, to set the scene, it's important to understand actually what happened on the day. 
The ride itself is the Tour of Flanders Cyclo Sportif. And being a sportif, there are three distances that you could attempt. 75 kilometers, 134 kilometers, and 254 kilometers. Alex originally was down for the 135, but after taking a wrong turn, ended up on the 75 kilometer course, which he finished very quickly. So after a quick stop, he decided to ride on the 135 course from start to finish. But some way through, he saw some riders that were going quite fast and wanted to jump on their wheel. So he jumped over a fence and got on their wheel. And they happened to be doing the 254 kilometer course. If you're confused, don't worry. It will hopefully make a bit more sense when Alex is talking about it. But it turned out to be quite an adventure and an epic journey. And this is definitely what I call turning around a potentially really shitty situation of missing a turn and not riding the correct course and turning it into a really great training ride, learning some skills from a couple of new friends, including last year's Belgium amateur champion, which showed him how to ride on the cobbles. So a great learning experience and turning around the next day and getting to watch the Tour of Flanders with these guys. Booyah. Anyway, on to the race report with Alex. All right, Alex, we're going to do a race report here for the Tour of Flanders Cyclo Sportif that you did yesterday, or two days ago now. You were aiming for the 135-kilometer distance event. We have had a bit of a discussion about how some things didn't work, so I think it would be good to go through this race report and actually figure out what went wrong and what you can change for next time or what we can both look at for next time. Okay, sounds good. So I have 12 questions here. And if we go through them, then we can hopefully uncover exactly what happened. And the first question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being poor, 10 being exceptional, how would you rate this performance and why did you rank it as such? All right. Um, Starting off, I thought this race was going to be super competitive. I uh, I thought it was like a Tour of Flanders the day before the Tour of Flanders for amateurs. But uh, it turned out to be more of a Grand Fonda, which, which is people starting off and kind of riding at their own pace and just doing the distance is what it seemed to me. So I, I went in with the race mentality, but seeing that, I didn't go that hard. So I would probably say a six, six or seven. Yeah, okay. I understand that. That just seems like it was really more of a participation event and you have told me that there were no strict start times either that there was a two-hour window that you could just arrive and start with precisely and there were so many riders too i don't think they probably didn't want that competition element too much just because there were so many people on the track which i read an estimation of around sixteen thousand riders sixteen thousand is about right and uh on those tiny roads it seems crazy yeah because the roads are super narrow and they have some real sharp hairpin turns and also a lot of pavé. <laughs> okay, so second question. How was the stress levels in your life in the days before the race? Um, I would actually say those stress levels were quite high. Because I left with a plane, or I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning before, and took a plane and had to get a rental car, pack my bike in a suitcase for the first time. There were a lot of things going on, and it, it was pretty stressful trying to find the event. And also... Um even getting to accommodation and things, registering, all of these things, I guess, really add to it. And if it's the day before, you don't have much time to think about food and things as well. How did you actually plan for food before the race? Did you take food with you or did you just find places when you were there? 
I brought my typical oats that I eat before a ride. Like I'll eat oats with bananas, nuts, raisins, and I brought that in a bag, which was great, and some milk. But apart from that, I tried to eat quite little, like three days before, and then a big meal the day, the night before. And you were able to find a place fairly easily. I found a place fairly easily, but it wasn't top-notch quality food or anything. <laughs> it was like, a, yeah. All right, question three. How were your sleeping patterns in the days before the race? <laughs> Again, not the best. Uh, I had to get up at four in the morning to take the plane. And on the night before, the night before the race, I actually thought my cell phone was stolen. I could not find my cell phone. So I kept the computer that was in the home that I was staying at to figure out what the time was. So you couldn't set an alarm? I could not set an alarm, no. Oof. That would actually really weigh heavily on my mind. Yep, it was weighing quite heavily on my mind too. It worked out, but yeah. And did you find your phone in the end? I did, yeah. It was hidden in, uh, in the corridor. Okay, number four, how were your eating habits on the day of the race? So we've gone through your breakfast. Yeah. But, but how about the actual event itself? Well, I've, I've figured out the best ride food or my favorite ride food is just loading up with lots of Snickers. <laughs> so tons and tons or lots of Snickers bars. I think I ate about five of them during the ride. And also uh, dates. I was going to experiment with like having a bottle of honey and using that as gel. I never got around to that, though. Maybe that's an experiment that uh, you can try some other time in training. Definitely. Maybe it's not, not for race day. Okay, question five. What was your warm-up routine for the race? Was it effective? If not, what would have been more effective? Um... No, I think it was a good warm-up routine. I just sort of rode around in Power Zone 1 real easy, looking at the track, stopping here and there, just kind of taking in the atmosphere and doing the first climb like at a high intensity three times. So this was the day before? This was the day before, yeah. And also riding some pavé, which I found way harder actually in Zone 1 than in a higher zone. This is the interesting thing about doing events like this. It seems like you have to actually practice them like you're practicing a mountain bike or a cross course. So the idea behind that is if you're going to do a practice lap, you do a practice lap at 80% of your race pace. So you understand the right. dynamics when you're going around the course. Right. So it seems like that would be useful if someone is going to ride it on any pavé. I think so because riding slow on pavé is like, it's hard. Going faster, if you go fast enough, which I sort of realized during the day, you flow over it. But going slow is just it just beats you up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number six, what were you thinking about on the start line? Did this help or hurt your performance? <laughs> well, as the start was so uh is was so open and uh you know I, I I was just thinking, is this is this the start? I mean is this is this how it's supposed to be? There was a very big gap between what I thought. I thought I was going into a race and the feeling I had going across the start line. So I was actually, I wasn't quite mentally there going across the start line. Plus, you have already told me that you were running late because you wanted to get there for seven. Um, the first time you could start was seven, yeah. You could start between seven and nine. And at seven o'clock, I had driven the wrong direction. 
because Belgium is completely flat, so you have nothing to sort of navigate by if you don't see a road sign. I'd driven the wrong direction for a while, and I saw, at 7 o'clock, I saw the timer on the car uh, passing 7, and I felt, felt terrible. Yeah. So would it be safe to say that by the time you got prepared out, ready, on the, the start line or riding through the start line, you were just not in a good place mentally? No, no, no definitely not. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Okay, so it seems like the lesson here is really, other than arriving when you want to arrive or leaving yeah. earlier is um, clearly knowing the type of event that you're going into. Oh, definitely. Because what's interesting is that I, there's another athlete that I coached that had a sportif on the same day in Australia. Oh, really? But that sportif itself is known for racing. Right, okay. So everybody tries to be up the front because there's lots of crashes and it gets really hectic and then there's one really hill that's a big decisive hill but yeah. it is basically like a race, even though they call it a sportif. And that's really what I thought this was, and that's really what I was preparing for. But I have talked to other people that started at 7, uh, or at least for my distance, and you said, you know, it wasn't competitive there either. So even at 7, there was long socks and hairy legs? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I'm not sure, but uh, as I wasn't there, but I think so. That's actually that's good for anyone that's thinking about doing this next year, I think. Yeah, and also for the shorter distances, you you could choose between three distances. The long one is the one that seemed the most competitive, and it seemed like you would only ride the shorter distances if you couldn't handle that many kilometers, not if you wanted a shorter, sharper race, which is what I thought. Which is kind of the way it works in, say, marathon mountain biking, where the blue ribbon event is the 100 kilometers or the, or the longest event, and if yeah. someone's riding the 50, they're either injured or they're too young or they... Yeah aren't competitive enough in the longer events. Or almost maybe too old. Which is, <laughs> maybe the other way around as well, yeah. Yeah, uh, or, you know, just sort of, yeah, they just wanted to have a good time riding. Um, it's great as well. Actually, it's it, yeah, it's more about just finishing something or, you know, getting yep. up some of those crazy bergs or whatever. Um, Definitely. Than being competitive. Number seven, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 poor, 10 exceptional, what was your motivation level for this race? Why did you rank it as such? Oh, my motivation level is quite high. I've been, um, and I've been thinking about it a lot during winter training because I live in Norway and I have been going out and training in minus 7 degrees and in slush and rain and you know, just seeing some sun and some grass and getting to ride this Belgian race. Oh, I was definitely very motivated. So I would say I would say eight. Eight, wow. Seven. What is really interesting about this race is that it was quite warm. Yeah. Well, it was like twenty degrees or something. Yeah, it was like twenty-two in the middle of the day. Okay, number eight. What was your hydration plan for the race? How well did you execute the plan, and could the plan be improved, and how? Well, my my hydration plan was simply having two bins of water. Mm-hmm. And then drinking at them, drinking and stopping once for the 135. That's, that was my plan. And that's um, what happened? For the first one, I didn't stop at all because I took a wrong turn and ended up on the 75-kilometer course. The Belgian roads are very, I mean, they're, it's just this labyrinth of roads. And at some point, I took a, took a wrong turning and ended up uh, finishing early. So I just drank like most of the one bottle. And then just went back out again. And then I went back out again without filling it. I was kind of bummed. 
<laughs> and I thought I would fill it along the race course. After drinking most of the second one, I found some competitive riders, and I really wanted to hold on to their wheel and keep riding with them. Um, the problem here was Pave, and Pave will test your gear. And uh, after a while, I lost my first bottle. Uh-huh. It just bounced off, and I wasn't, I was, there was no way I was going to stop and pick it up. Uh, and after a while, riding more, I actually lost my second bottle as well. But luckily, these people I was riding with, they, they had a car, so they'd, they'd stop and let me drink. So what lessons can you take away from that? Like, yeah, a real good bottle cage for Yeah, riding. other than securing the biddens very well. Um, yeah. It seems like you didn't drink a lot. Did you feel the effects of not drinking? Because it was quite hot compared to what you've been used to. Yeah, no, but that's maybe a personal thing. I don't usually need to drink too much. And it wasn't at 22 degrees. It's, it's just not, it's not that hot, really. It's 30 I mean, degrees hotter than you've been riding, though. Yeah, but still, it's, still, I think it's not too hot. I mean, if it gets close to 30 or 25, 30, I think I'm more like any other person, just that, I can, that I'm used to riding at minus 7 Okay. during winter. So definitely something we'll have to think about once it starts getting warmer, though. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So number nine, what was your pacing strategy for the race? How well did you execute the strategy? Uh, well, the pacing strategy was to start off in high level uh, or high power zone two, so modestly enough, and just sort of feel feel how the body felt, mm-hmm. um, and then crank it up and crank it up the closer I got to the finish, and that's kind of what I did. I started going faster and faster, and I, I really didn't feel like I was having too much trouble. But I never got into the top zone that I was sort of anticipating because of the lack of competitiveness. And also when I found other people to ride with, um, you kind of vary the pace so much that, no, I, I didn't feel like I was maxing it out. So definitely at some point you just threw the pacing strategy out the window. Like it, it, it just became useless. Like you couldn't push hard because of no competitive elements. You start riding with other people. It's hard to ride to a plan. You just ride to their pace. Yeah, and also it just wasn't the perfect event for it because there were so many people on the track. You know, like there were lots of people and they weren't going as fast uh, in the race course. You couldn't actually sit on a consistent pace anyway if you wanted to. No, you're kind of, you're kind of weaving in and out. It's kind of like going in and out here and there and trying to find your way. And sometimes it just slows down. Like, and sometimes, sometimes there are less people and you can go faster. Was it frustrating or were you able to get momentum and use it as motivation? Like for the first couple hours, I was very frustrated. But then I just sort of got used to the idea, you know, take it for what it is, and it was a lot of fun. Okay. Number 10, what decisions did you make before or during the race that helped your performance? Uh, that helped my performance? I think just sort of letting myself push up the hills like several times, even if I knew that there were many hills left. I think that was a good decision, just sort of uh, not really looking at the computer too much and just going. So putting it in on every hill knowing like that you could yeah. recover afterwards even even if it was yeah. very early yeah i think i think that was good okay that's interesting 11 what decisions did you make before or during the race that did not help your performance <laughs> other than navigation other than navigation um i would say sorry about this one it's taking a while it's a tough question because it seems like the measure for performance here wasn't necessarily a result or there was no power numbers that you were trying to hit, you know, like 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I could say easily not taking more water for, for round two was a very bad decision. But just in that instance, not in the instance of stopping in other times to not take water? Yeah, um, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I just, no, I don't know. Okay. That's a hard one for me. That is a hard one. I, I guess... I think, it's, I think it's hard because just because it wasn't, the focus on performance wasn't that high. Yep. That um, it was like riding with other people and stopping when they stop. I mean, I could have gone harder and not stopped, but it was, it was more of a casual race than I thought. It wasn't, yeah. So the performance just isn't so strong. So number 12 and the final one. Yeah. Anything else about the race, positive or negative, you feel is important? Well... Yeah, about the Tour de Flanders, fantastic because the roads are real narrow. It's almost like riding a mountain bike race where you have a lot of obstacles and you have a lot of things to do. It's not like riding a big wide road. You have to be pretty technical and just sort of going into turns, really leaning over and then speeding up out of them. Uh, it's amazingly fun and challenging. So I'm not sure if you spotted it, but there is one gaping hole that this report actually exposed to me as Alex's coach, and it is no thy event. Race intelligence is super important and any assumptions can go wrong and definitely psych you out on race day. And if he had been racing against other riders on the day, but for some reason the event that he was expecting changed, then it could have been detrimental to his performance. But finding other riders that have completed in the event before is a good way to understand how it usually goes down on race day because it is one thing to plan for the course, but make sure you plan for the riders as well. Lesson learnt from both of us. Also, next race, I'll be sure to revisit the issue of pre-race preparation with sleep and travel and race day timing to smooth out the day and reduce some stress. I'll also change my recommendation for pacing strategy based on Alex's feedback. That's what I get from it. But what do I do with this information? For me, this will go directly into my notes for the next race, even sticking them directly next to the race day workout page in the training program is a great reminder, but you also want it leading up to this, or if it's other performance-based things, you want to immediately put them into a training workout so you can work on them while they're fresh in the athlete's mind as well. So there you have it, but one final note, take your time with this and give it your full attention. It really will seem like a pain in the ass to do, especially after every single small, big, whatever race, but the time spent explicitly writing or talking about your race is a small sacrifice in comparison to the training you do. It could actually wag the dog, so it becomes very important when you think about the return on investment that you get for this time. So definitely, in my opinion, it is worth the investment of putting together an objective evaluation of your performances, and it will maximize your training time and identify the things that most affect your performance on race day. And once these limiters are assessed, you'll certainly rock it out on race day. Now, the tech hacks and products section, and it is a product which is actually unreleased, which is a little frustrating, but I thought I would bring it to your attention because I think it is fascinating. It could definitely help you fine-tune your nutrition, whether it is 
for losing weight, maintaining or gaining weight. But it's called Breezing and it's a mobile metabolism tracker. And Breezing tracks your metabolism over time and it gives you a precise guide on how to lose, maintain and gain weight based on a couple of different metrics. It's pretty much just a thing you put in your hand and you breathe into the product and it sends that data to your phone. I know there are actual medical instruments out there like this, but this is just, again, bringing quantified data to the people. So here are the claimed metrics that you can get. Resting metabolic rate, respiratory quotient, and respiratory quotient tells you whether your body is burning carbohydrates, fats, or a mix of both. So respiratory quotient gives you a better picture about the food that you're metabolizing so you know how it affects your overall weight, mood, and health. It also records over time your weight history and your resting metabolic rate. So like I said, it's not released, but I know from their blog that they have stock and they're trying to fill orders. I gather it costs around 250 bucks, and I think its main value for cyclists is the respiratory quotient to see before and after a ride what mix of energy stores is fueling your riding because perhaps you're trying to account for that in your training planning and your on-the-bike food. I'll definitely link to the landing page in the show notes, so check it out if this floats your boat. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Team Canada's coach, Sebastian Weber, instructing the riders on his training method called the Limited TT Race. It's 24 riders that are divided into three teams, thus the team one, two, and three. In this case, Team Sagan, Team Basso, and Team Viviani. The goal is riding six kilometers flat along the Tuscany Langomere. Oof. My Italian accent is even worse than my French one. Achieving the lowest average power output at a speed of 47 kilometers minimum. The lowest power output means the average power of the team plus the difference of the speed. The goal here is not only to produce the lowest power in order to save energy, but it's also to equally distribute it amongst the team riders. It's a lesson in team time trial strategy. In the beginning, you press set. After 12 kilometers, you will see the car, you press set. Okay? The average speed at the end has to be minimum 47. Okay? No inferiore di 47 kilometer per hour. So, you can go... 60 in the beginning and then 20, I don't care, right? Just at the end, 47. If you go slower, disqualified, out. What's important is the last rider try to make any power for nothing, yeah. you know? So when you go back, immediately in the last wheel and... Yeah, and uh, he goes in the front for a minute and a half. You, he has to you stay one. in my shoulder. So that's Basso talking team strategy. So who won out of these three teams? Of course, you can't go past Wonderboy Sagan. Team Sagan came in with 164.5 watts at 47.12 kilometers, where Basso 169.5, 47.01 kilometers, and Team Viviani 172.4 watts and 47.12 kilometers. So you can see there is a massive difference there in output saved in wattage compared to the speed that they rode. And I've got to wonder how Sagan got his riders to do better. That is something something you can think about all week, but that's it for me. So you have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. 
Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash report to find a copy of the race report used in this week's episode. And from there, you can sign up to your free wheelhouse masterclass, Building the Base, a step-by-step system for achieving your cycling goals. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 